This is the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast, where we explore the beauty of Judaism, the depth of Jewish wisdom, and how to live a more empowered life. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome back to the Empowered Jewish Living Podcast. I'm so happy that you are here joining us once again. We are in the middle of an incredible time of year called the Omer. The Omer, or Sefirat Omer is a time period that begins at the beginning of Passover. It culminates Shavuot each day from the beginning of Passover until we reach Shavuot. We count. Today is day one. Today is day two. We count each day during our services, and each day is meant to remind, each count is meant to remind us that we are one step closer in our journey, in our growth, and that all of our journeys in life, if we make a small step forward every single day, we we have breakthroughs that will always be on our horizon. So we count each day. And we are now coming up, depending when you're listening to this podcast, but we're coming up shortly to a day called Lag Baomer. Lag is Lamid Gimel, the Hebrew letters Lamid Gimel, which is numerical value 33. So it is the 33rd day of the Omer, and this is considered to be an auspicious day, a mini holiday, a celebration, and a beautiful, powerful day. In the diaspora, Outside of Israel, you don't really feel it as much. Certain holidays, just they just don't transfer that well outside of Israel. But if anyone has ever been to Israel during Lagba Omer, you know that it is a day of celebration across the country. It is celebrated with music and dancing and bonfires, and we'll explain why shortly. And the center of all of that joy is Mount Meron. Mount Meron is a mountain in the north of Israel, and that is where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is buried. And much of the celebration that happens on Lagba Omer is connected to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And we're going to explain very shortly who he was and why we have a day where we celebrate his legacy. I, I have to point out before we begin that, just to give a little bit of context, when I gave this class that I'm about to share with you last year, I opened up the class by speaking about the tremendous joy and celebration that happens in Meron. I personally had the privilege of being there uh, many years ago when I was a student in Israel to be on the mountain right by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai's burial place on Lagba Omer. And I have such amazing memories of that singing and dancing and music and bonfires and vendors and food and and prayer. I, I have just such, such uh, tremendous, tremendous memories. Many of you might recall that last year there was a very tragic event that happened in Meron on Lagba Omer. Um, and because of the masses of people that were there, there was a, a, a crush of some sort. And uh, unfortunately, 
there were many fatalities. And because of that, the nature of Meiron this coming year will certainly be different. There are many more precautions. I'm sure that it will once again be festive and be beautiful, but there certainly will be an aspect, an element of bittersweetness that's happening. There will be a vigil there towards the end of Lagba Omer for the families of those who were lost last year. So definitely the nature of the celebration in Meiron will change, um, but certainly uh, the day is still a very, very powerful day for prayer, for joy, an auspicious day, um, and also a day that will remember forever the events that happened, the tragic events that happened. And as Jews, we're often asked, to juggle different emotions, often simultaneously, joy and sadness, that's part of our repertoire. And uh, and Lagba Omer is that, and it's certainly that this year. But that being said, we want to dive in, we want to understand what Lagba Omer is about, because it is such a beautiful day. And I hope that by sharing this, the following class with you, you will be able to understand a little bit more of what Lagba Omer is, who is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and uh, overall, his teachings, which are very much the teachings of Kabbalah, what role they play for us as Jews? What is the place of Kabbalah within Judaism? And uh, please take some time, listen to the end, because I share some really, really fascinating stuff at the end. And I think you'll really enjoy it. And I think it'll, it will enhance your Lagba Omer. Wishing everyone out there all of the best and a happy Lagba Omer. Who was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Who was he? And why do we celebrate Lagba Omer, which was the day of his death? Uh, according to some of the Svarim, according to some of the books, it was also the day of his birth. So he was born and certainly died on this 33rd day of the Omer. Lag is Lamed Gimel. Lamed is 30. Gimel is 3. So Lagba Omer means the 33rd day of the Omer. And on the 33rd day of the Omer, that was the day of his passing. Uh, maybe we have, there's so much to say in today's class, but maybe we'll be able to speak specifically about the significance of that day. Um, but, um, but that was the, the day of his passing. And the reason why we light bonfires on that day is because on the day of his passing, his students gathered around his deathbed and it says that he revealed secrets of the Torah, secrets of Jewish mysticism that had never in the history of man had been revealed before. And his students took note of the teachings that he was teaching. And it says that as he was teaching it, the whole room was filled with light. It felt like you were in the middle of a fire. It was, the, the, the spiritual energy was so powerful and so tangible. It says that he had to actually excuse many of the students that were not part of his inner circle. It was too much for them. They had to leave. They couldn't even be in the building. He only had really his inner circle there, his son, who he was very close with, who we'll speak about. Uh, his son was Rabbi Lazar, uh, his student, uh, Rabbi Abba, Rabbi Chia, I believe. Um, they were there, they were present with him as he was revealing this, these powerful, powerful teachings. And these teachings became what's called the Zohar. 
the Zohar is not the first book of Kabbalah, but it's certainly the basis of Kabbalah. The basis of Jewish mysticism is the Zohar. There were other books before that, Sefer Yitzira, Sefer Habahir, Ruziel Hamalach. These, there were there, there were books, Kabbalistic books before that, but none of the magnitude of the Zohar. After his death, the teachings of the Zohar were not immediately spread. They were not put into, into you know, the mainstream curriculum. In fact, the actual manuscript of the Zohar was not out for public. The public was, were, were not able to learn it. Uh, it took probably about a thousand years, maybe even more than that, in the times of the Ramban, in the times of Nachmanides, about a thousand years later in Spain, that is when the manuscript of the Zohar surfaced. The possessor at the time, or the one who discovered the manuscript, or who, who started publicizing that he had the manuscript, was a fellow by the name of Rabbi Moshe Dilian. Uh, who I think that legend has it that he received it from the Ramban, from Nachmanides. People, many people at the time did not believe him that it was authentic, that it was from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. They thought perhaps that he himself had written it and was trying to pass it off for the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. But I think those for the most part have been discredited and it is pretty widely believed uh, I think all other theories have been discredited. It is pretty widely believed that the way that we have the Zohar now is in fact the authentic teachings that came all the way back from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And that is really the Kabbalah that we study. Now it happens to be that the Kabbalah that we study, the, the Zohar itself is written in Aramaic and it was written very, very difficult. So the Zohar was not easy to understand for anyone, even the greatest Torah scholars. And therefore mystics who had as part of their teachings, they were part of the Kabbalistic tradition, mystics were able to decipher, you know, to some extent what the Zohar was talking about. But until Tzvat, the holy city of Tzvat, this is why we call it the mystical city of Tzvat, but um, only in Tzvat, in the 1500s, when the great mystic Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Arizal, right, who we've quoted many, many times in these classes, the Arizal came along and the Arizal uh, created a much more tangible language. So he was able to present the teachings of Kabbalah, the teachings of the Zohar, but in a language where it could be much more easily understood by someone who was part of the school of mystics, that's really when Kabbalah was able to explode and when it, when it, when it was able to become a thing. And he had his students um, and all of the mystics that surrounded him, Rav Moshe Kardavero, Rav Chaim Vital, um, and others who really became sort of the, the, the pioneers to make Kabbalah um, an actual part of the curriculum of, you know, of, of what Torah means. Still, for many, many hundreds of years after that, it was still kept as a very secret study, and we'll discuss a little bit why. And really, it's been only in the last 200 years, with the emergence, the Baal Shem Tov came along. And the Baal Shem Tov, as we know, was the founder of the Hasidic movement. And the Baal Shem Tov and his students did something very similar to what the Arizal had done with the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, make it available to the masses or at least the people 
it wasn't the masses then, but at least it, it, make it more available to those who understood it, those who can study it, made it more available as a curriculum, as a way to teach it with a, with, with a language that was applicable to their way of speaking, the Baal Shem Tov really brought it down to the next level. And the Baal Shem Tov made those teachings available really to anyone who wanted to study it. And that's really, with, with, with the birth of the Hasidic movement, that's really when the teachings of Kabbalah really made its way out to the masses. And obviously in recent years, with many of the great Kabbalistic works that have been translated, uh, and, and those who have, who, who the, the, the zeitgeist of the time really demanded, because people are looking, they want it, they, people think now more mystically, they're searching, they're, they're yearning, for that deep wisdom um and and it's been uh, the teachings of both the original Kabbal the, the, the kabbalists of tzvat as well as the kabbalists within the hasidic movement are now readily available in english that's really when uh you know kabbalah has has exploded and and it has very much become part of uh the mainstream the mainstream curriculum it's it's one of the reasons why we are now coming to the close of our second year of a series that is really based on kabbalistic teachings and we're just scratching the surface this is not you know deep kabbalah this is you know, what, what we do this is just you know kabbalistic but it goes deeper and it goes deeper um and you know one could just imagine the the endless endless amount of wisdom that there is in jewish mysticism so that's a little bit of understanding the history, but again, it all really traces back to Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So therefore, uh, Lagba Omer is celebrated. It's the celebration of the life of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. <clears throat> the celebration of the life of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, but it's really also the celebration of this Kabbalistic wisdom. So let's speak a little bit about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and uh, about who he was. There's a beautiful story. It's not in the Talmud, but I just want to share it because I think this, it's just a, it's a beautiful story. And I saw it in a, uh, in a book um, by the name of uh, Nachlas Avos. Well, that's not where I saw it, but I saw it quoted in the name of a book called Nachlas Avos. It says that the birth, just very, very quickly, it says that Rabbi Shimon Bar, so he's called Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, which means that his father's name was Yochai. And uh, he was a wealthy man, and he was a very important person. But him and his wife were unable, for many, many years, were unable to have children. And um, they were already sort of negotiating that maybe they should get divorced, and maybe he should marry another woman, because, you know, he deeply wanted to have children. And um, it was very painful for both of them and caused the wife a lot of pain and a lot of tears. And on Rosh Hashanah night, Yochai had a dream. And in his dream, he was in an open field with a lot of trees. And some of those trees were blossoming and blooming. They had fruit coming from them. And some of those trees were just stubs you know, trunks without any, without anything growing. And he saw a giant of a man who had this big bucket of carrying this big bucket of water and he was spraying water on the trees. 
And whenever he would spray some water on, on a tree, it would blossom, fruit would come from it. And whenever he skipped a tree, it would remain, you know, dead. And Yochai understood what was going on. He understood what, in his dream what he was dreaming. Because we know that on Rosh Hashanah night, it's decided, like we say in Rosh Hashanah davening, who's going to have children, who's going to be born, who's going to die. And he understood that what he was seeing in his dream was the angel that's spraying water, meaning that's giving life and deciding, you know, who's going to have children that year, who's not going to have children that year. And he's sitting there, Yochai, he's sitting there on a tree stump. He looks around, he's sitting on a stump, which is completely dry. And he realizes that's him and his wife because they hadn't had any children yet. And he's sitting there anticipating and hoping that the angel is going to put some water that's going to bless him with children. And the angel walks right by and the angel doesn't pour any water from the bucket onto his tree. And he's devastated. And before the angel finishes up the job, the angel reaches or this giant of a man who he understands is the angel that's appointed uh, for giving life. The angel reaches into his pocket and he picks picks up a little flask of water, a small little flask of water. And he takes the flask, he unscrews it and or uncorks it, and he walks over to the tree that Yochai is sitting on, and he pours this flask onto this tree stump. And suddenly the tree explodes with, with, with fruit and with blossoms, and all the other trees in his dream, all the other tr- trees that are around, they all lean in to, to try to get a little bit of the nourishment from this tree. And Yochai wakes up from his dream. And he tells it over to his wife and they say, we have to go to Rabbi Akiva, right? Yochai was a student of Rabbi Akiva who we studied about last week. <clears throat> and he said, we have to go to Rabbi Akiva and we have to ask what it means. And Rabbi Akiva said that you're, you're accurate exactly what you thought, that what the, the giant that you saw in your dream was the angel that's appointed to give life. And the tree that you saw, the reason that it was dry is because you were not, you did not merit to have any children. And that's why the angel was not pouring any water because you did not merit on your own to have children. But when he took out the flask, you know what, what was in that little flask? You know what the water was in that flask? That was your wife's tears. That was your wife's tears. Her tears were able to give life in a way that, that none of the other water was able to, to do. And that's one of the reasons why all of the other trees leaned in because the neshama, the soul that was brought down, we know very often that souls that are destined to add so much light to the world, often they don't come down easily, right? They need, they need a lot of tears and a lot of... So the, the, this soul that would come down is going to be a soul that's going to light up the world with the Torah that he's going to teach, with the leadership that he's going to show. And that year, they had the sun and that son became Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, again, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful, it's an amazing story. And again, he's the student of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva himself, we spoke about it last week. Rabbi Akiva was a great mystic on his own. So we, we had mentioned last week in the class that the Torah has the written Torah, the oral Torah. We had mentioned that the written Torah is really just the, the unchangeable word of God. We spoke about how the oral Torah is man is the, is the tools that we have to interpret that, to understand it, to go deeper, to, to be creative about that. 
And now this week when we introduce Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and we introduce Kabbalah, we introduce this idea of mysticism, it's not a third branch because it's considered part of the oral Torah, but in contrast to the section of the oral Torah called the Talmud, the Talmud is meant to deal with what Judaism looks like in the world of the five senses, on the, the terra firma that we stand on, the, the ox that we use to plow the field, right? The money that we, that's in our bank account, the food that we put in our mouth. Um, it deals with, is this what's called mutter or usser? Is it permissible or is it prohibited? Is it pure or is it impure? It deals with the tangibles. It's Jewish law. Kabbalah doesn't deal with the physical world. Kabbalah deals with the spiritual world. It understands how our world is nothing more than an outer layer of clothing, like we've said many times, right? The physical world is just the clothing for the spiritual reality that's behind it. This entire world has behind it a spiritual code, like that awesome, awesome, this is the, one of the most important uh, scenes in Hollywood is The Matrix, right? When, what's his name again? Neo, what I think is what, what his name is, but in The Matrix, where the main character is starting to become a little bit more, he understands, he's plugged into the program and he's starting to see reality for what it really is, not the fake reality that all other human beings are plugged into, right? All other human beings, and this is the way he starts, right? Are just plugged into this false reality, this fakeness. And the main character manages to plug himself in where he's able to enter the, 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 the true, the actual real world. And when he's there, suddenly he starts seeing everything is just one big coding, one big code. And uh, in a way, that is supposed to be a, a metaphor for us and how we process the world. Do we take the physical world too seriously or do we realize that there is a spiritual code behind it? Do we realize that we have a way to view the world with the spiritual truths that make it run? And because of that, one could see and one could understand why the wisdom of Kabbalah wasn't meant to necessarily be introduced to the world early on. Because all of Torah, all of Torah is important. And, you know, we all know, and you might have felt this from time to time, and I feel this from time to time, and you've certainly met people that say, you know, they're looking for spirituality. And then you invite them to your home for Shabbat, and you say, ah, we're going to have a beautiful Shabbat together. What is Shabbat about? Oh, come into my kitchen. Oh, do this. Don't do this. There's suddenly a bunch of rules. This is allowed. This is not allowed. There are... And, you know, um, I just want to sit around and, and, I, and I, I want to meditate and I want to feel the presence of God. And then you're like, you could eat here and you can't eat here and you got to do this. Here. And, it's, and it seems very, it's, it's sometimes, you know, Judaism could seem like there is, there is so much of a focus on the yeses and the noes. And where's all that spirituality? Because within Judaism, Judaism... Uh, focuses on every single level of reality and saying that we exist in many, many different realities. And therefore, our job is to 
perfect all of those realities. And in a world of black and white, in a world of right and wrong, we need to operate within that world. We need to operate within the world of right or wrong. And therefore we can say, this is allowed and this is not allowed. But if someone enters into the world of spiritual connection, spiritual unification without being solidly grounded in how to operate in this world, they could lose themselves. And not only can they lose their identity of how to perfect the world, but they can make terrible mistakes. So for example, for example, you know, we know that there were many times throughout a recent history, American culture, spiritual culture, new age culture, where people who had powerful, powerful spiritual experiences could not adapt to a healthy lifestyle in this world after that. Once you experience the unification, how you're connected to all souls, sometimes they've, they lost their sense of boundaries because we do live in a world of boundaries. So to have such intense, intense spirituality without being properly grounded can actually be dangerous. And those who have tried to make the journey to spirituality without, without the, the willingness to do the work in the physical world and say certain things yes, certain things no, their spirituality often becomes unhinged and often is difficult to maintain, but is certainly missing out on an aspect of what we're here to do, and that is to elevate the physical world the physical world, not just the spiritual world. So yeah, again, so beautiful. So that's where I was getting. So that's why Kabbalah was not necessarily taught off the bat, but there first had to be the development of the Mishnah, the, the, the development of the Talmud. And for a while, there was a, the, the Talmud discouraged, the sages of the Talmud, they discouraged learning what they called Maisimer Kava. They, they, they discouraged learning about what was going on in the heavenly realms because that wasn't their goal. That wasn't where Torah, that wasn't where the evolution of Torah stood at that time. There had to be a world of right and wrong, yes and no, permitted, prohibited, pure, impure. There had, that world had to first be fully developed for us to say, okay, now that we figured out how to live in the physical world, now we can make that journey into the spiritual world. The, the beauty, and we're going to see this a little bit more in just a moment, but the beauty, the greatness of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, is that if I would tell you off the bat, if I'd say, listen, who's Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, let's just say he's the father of Kabbalah, okay? No one dubbed him that. That's just, you know, if I would introduce him as that, okay? He's, he's the father of Kabbalah. He's the greatest mystic to ever walk the planet. Close your eyes, picture what you think he is. And you're going to start thinking probably of someone who is just living, you know, in outer space, who just sits there in the corner and meditates all day and totally transcends reality. Or you come to him and he blesses you and, you know, he can probably read, you know, you read your mind and tell you your past and tell you your future. And you imagine someone very otherworldly. <laughs> when you learn Talmud, when you learn about the most mundane the most practical applications of Torah. Who, who's having those discussions? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, 
Rabbi, or you, you look at the names, you, you'll see this name, Rabbi Shimon. Who is Rabbi Shimon in the Talmud? Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The greatest mystic to ever live is also having conversations about whether or not you're allowed to do X or Y in the kitchen on Shabbat, whether this is considered kosher, whether right, very practical things, just those simple things that make Jews holy because we pay attention to these little details. It's the very same Rabbi Shimon. And that's, all, that's one of the things that has always been very, very central to Judaism, which is unique amongst many of the spiritual practices that we do not, we, we, we don't separate the mystic and the rabbi who could answer the practical questions. We believe that someone who's not living in this physical world, in the world of mundane, deciphering right and wrong, deciphering the very basic aspects of Jewish law, right? That person, only that person can be the mystic. We, we, we can't divide those two things and say, no, 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 there's the spiritual person and then there's the, you know, there's the halacha guy, there's the Jewish law person. Those things need to go hand in hand. And that's why Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai is such an incredible human being, because on the one hand, we see what we hear one voice when we read the Zohar, this voice of this mystic, this voice of someone who is just out totally out of this world. But yet we hear his voice in the Talmud and he is so in the world. He's so part of the community. He's so in tune to the community's needs. I want to share with you over here, this is the handout that I sent you, but this is the very famous story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So, I don't want to take too much time, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but anyways, this story over here, this is a story from Shabbat 33b, and I'll just, I'll say it outside. The, the story goes that there were a couple of rabbis, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai amongst them, they were sitting around, and the discussion came up about the Romans. That's where they were living. They were living in a Roman-ruled Israel. And someone made a compliment about the Romans, and he said, how pleasant are the actions of the nation. Look what they've done. They established marketplaces, established bridges, established bathhouses. And it says, Rabbi Yossi was silent, but Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai spoke out, and he said, everything that they established, they only did it for themselves. Marketplaces for the prostitutes, bathhouses for their own indulgence, bridges for taxes. And it was told to the Roman government that this is what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai said, that he was an outspoken critic of the Roman Empire. And because of that, they decreed that he should have to be killed. For a while, they tried to hide in the study hall. Rabbi Shimon's wife would bring them food, but he was nervous that they were going to find his wife, torture her, and that she, she would give away their hiding place. So they went and they hid in a cave. The cave was in a town called Piki, and you can still go, you can still go to the town. It's actually, the town is mainly a Druze town, not Jews, Druze. Um, I was there and they actually have a specific cave that they say that was the cave that he hid in. Who knows if it's true, uh, it's kind of hard to believe, but they do have a cave that they say, this is the cave, I took a picture of in it, but they say this is the cave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. And it says that as he learned, as they stayed in that cave, they stayed there for 12 years in that cave, and while they were there in that cave, there were several miracles that happened to them. A carob tree fed them, a spring of water. 
But not only that, it said that they had great revelations in that cave, revelations of mysticism. Elijah the prophet appeared to them, others, other souls appeared to them. And it was revealed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son, Rabbi Lazar, in that cave, all of these deep secrets of Torah. After 12 years, they emerged from the cave and they saw, and this, this speaks to what we were just speaking about a moment ago. They saw that people were engaged just in day-to-day work. This one's right going to the office, right? There's lawyers, there's doctors, this one's working in a factory, this one's working in the field, right? They're running to the supermarket, right? Just people are involved in daily life. You know how like when you've just had a spiritual experience, right? And you're just like, totally stoked about your spiritual experience and then like you go back and you're like "Ah, i was just in israel it was so amazing and like nobody gets it and then you're just like oh my gosh you guys are you're so shallow you don't get my spirituality in a way they come out of this cave and they were just literally tripping out for the last 12 years and they look and they're like what is going on nobody gets it and it says their vision was so piercing that they were starting to cause destruction to the world. And a divine voice emerged and said to them, did you emerge from the cave in order to destroy my world? Go back to your cave. So they went back for another year. And after that, they realized through a divine voice, they realized that it was time to come out. Rabbi Lazar was still not on the level that he could tolerate humanity, but Rabbi Shimon was. And then the the story has a beautiful ending. It says, as the sun was setting on Shabbat Eve, they saw an elderly man who was holding two bundles of myrtle branches and running at twilight. They said to him, where are you going with these myrtle branches? And he said, what do you mean? It's in honor of Shabbat. They said to him, well, why do you need two? Just, you know, take one. So he answered them, one is for remember the Shabbat day and the other is for observe the Shabbat day. Rabbi Shimon said to his son, see how beloved the mitzvot are to Israel? Their minds were put at ease and they were no longer as upset that people were not engaged in Torah study, which means the following. It's, and it's a really a beautiful ending to the, to the story because what it's saying is that even though they saw that these people were engaged in just day-to-day mundane activity, but they saw when it came time for Shabbat, when it came time for Shabbos, everything shut down. And they said, no, no, no. We're ready for this day of spirituality. And Rabbi Shimon realized that for some people, their whole, their whole mission in life might be to just be immersed in, in Torah study and prayer and spirituality. But for some, they got to go to work. But any Jew who's able to shut down before Shabbat and say, okay, that was a great week. Thank you, God, for an amazing week. But it's time to go into Shabbat. Now I want to be all in for Shabbat. That's going to bring holiness to everything that they do. And that shows a Jew who can rest on Shabbat shows that even the mundanities of the week, even the mundane work of the week, even that's holy, even that's special, even that's spiritual. So that, that's the story. That's the classic story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. And once again, speaking to this point, showing this sort of this duality of what it means to be a Jew to be in both of these worlds, to be both in the world of the body as well as the world of the spirit. And Rabbi, Rabbi Shimon is considered sort of the master of both. Coming out of the cave the first time, he was too much in the spiritual world. He couldn't be that leader. When he came out of the cave the second time, he was able to look at the world in a new way and see how even the simplest human being, even the simplest Jew who works hard all day, 
But the very fact that they're willing to put it aside and be committed to Shabbat shows that really their whole existence is, 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 is about being committed and being connected to God. There is a, a very beautiful piece of Talmud which really builds on this. One that, that uh, they sing verses from this piece of Talmud in Meron. By the way, over here in this hand that, that I gave you, you can actually read a little bit. I told you beforehand that the reason that this bonfire is on Lagba Omer um, is because <coughs> of, on the day that Rav Shimon Bar Yechai was about to pass on to the next world, when he called the students in, the energy was like, it was like a fire. It was so powerful, the energy. So that's why they light. And you can read a little bit about that experience over here. But I want to jump and call your attention over here to this piece of Talmud, Shabbat 138b. The Talmud writes, when our sages entered the vineyard in Yavne, so they were studying, they said, the Torah is destined to be forgotten from the Jewish people. Meaning they looked ahead. They looked at what Jewish history was going to look like. A lot of persecution. A lot of Jews going from place to place, a Holocaust that's going to wipe out 6 million Jews. But Jewish people that are going to move around the world, come to <clears throat> all, all different places, America and other places, and feel somewhat disconnected from our heritage, somewhat disconnected from our history, not feel the same fire that we felt in the past. And we know today the state of the Jewish people, right? It was 90% of the Jewish people say that they're completely, completely unaffiliated. Just a... a, a our sages saw that the future of the Jewish people would be difficult. And they said the Torah is destined to be forgotten from the Jewish people. The Jewish people are going to feel disconnected. And they quote a verse, Behold, days are coming, says, says the Lord God. And I will send forth a hunger in the land, not a hunger for bread, not a thirst for water, but for hearing the word of Hashem, hearing the word of God. And it states, and they will drift from sea to sea, from north to east, they will roam to find the word of Hashem, but they will not find it. So pretty much, sages are pretty much looking at the Jewish people and saying, you guys are in trouble because the Jewish people at the end of days are going to be very much disconnected. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai answers. He says, Chas v'shalom. Heaven forbid that the Torah should be forgotten from the Jewish people. As it is stated, and he quotes this pasuk, he quotes this verse from Deuteronomy, from Dvarim, and this song shall answer to him as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten from his seed. It shall not be forgotten. No, 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 no. Don't be so hard on the Jewish people. You're right. Is it going to be rough? Oh, yeah. Are there going to be those 90% of Jews that are going to be just totally lost? Oh, yeah. But to say that it's going to be forgotten, uh-uh. The Torah says, it shall not be forgotten from his seed. Take a look at the Hebrew over here on the screen. It will not be forgotten. This is a quote from the Torah, the written Torah, the Bible. It will not be forgotten from his people. Yud, take a look at the bold letters here. Yud, Aleph, Ches, Yud, and Vav. You do a little bit of a scramble here. And what does this spell? Yochai. Yochai. 
Meaning he was saying, he specifically quoted that person saying, I'll tell you why it's never going to be lost. Because when you think at the end of days that Jews are becoming disconnected, there's going to be a revelation. I'm teaching you Torah right now, and you know what? It's going to go in some manuscript that's going to be hidden in some cave someplace, and nobody's going to have it. <laughs> but fast forward 2,000 years. Fast forward to Rockville, Maryland, to cities all over, all over the diaspora, or to study halls in Jerusalem, or in Bnei Brak, or in Tel Aviv, or wherever else. You want to know what the Jewish people are going to be clinging onto at the end of days when they feel so distant from God? The Torah of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The Torah of mysticism. There's going to be this awakening of Kabbalah, this awakening of Jews who want to connect to the actual source. They want to know, how does God run the world? How can I connect to God? How is it that every single thing that I do on this physical world is somehow connected to this deeper coding? It's specifically the Torah of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that's going to ensure that, that the Jewish children are going to come home. And if you take a look how this Torah has inspired so many different people, how it's really plugged so many Jews who have felt so disconnected, and how it's brought them back. You know, I, I want to share with you, there's a piece in the Zohar, written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. So he points to Parshas Noach, in Parshas Noach, the second, the second the Torah portion. So it says that, par, that um, Noach was 600 years old when he entered into the uh, ark. And we know that the flood, what was the flood? So it says about the flood, that when the flood came, Noah was 600 years old. And it says that the heavenly waters started pouring down, right? It says that, th that there were the lower waters, the depths started to rise, and the heavenly waters started to pour down. So the lower waters and the upper waters met to flood the entire world, and Noah was in a teva, the teva, Noah was in this ark at 600 years old, sort of experiencing or being protected from the waters that were coming from above and below. And the Zohar says that there's a hidden message over here. The Zohar says that the 600 Noach being 600 years old is also a hint to what's going to be 600 years into the fifth millennium of mankind, which is the Hebrew date 5600, right? 600, so it's 600 years of the fifth millennium. So that's year 5600 in the Jewish calendar. And therefore, it says that during that year, during that time, 5600, there is going to be a flood of wisdom that's going to enter into the world from below and from above, like the waters of the marble, which came from below and above. If you track, just to give the sense of history, when does that line up with the secular calendar? That is the year 1840. 1840 marks the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, beginning of the railroad, when really globalization began, where there was this infusion of the lower waters, the waters of technology, the waters of science, the lower waters pouring into the world. But that was also the very same time that the Baal Shem Tov and the student, well, the students of the Baal Shem Tov 
the Hasidic movement and other Kabbalistic movements that, have been, that had been underground from all of history, they started teaching their stuff. And suddenly from below science, from above Kabbalah, mysticism and science were coming together really for the last 200 years. Coming together to create this beautiful, beautiful symphony of lower wisdom and upper wisdom coming together. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai wrote about that in the Zohar. He wrote about that. He referenced that by saying in that year, 5600, that year, that's going to happen. There's going to be this marble, this flood of wisdom that's going to enter into this world. And that's going to be the beginning of this messianic time, this, this, this woke, right? We call it woke now, this woke time, this, this, this yearning for higher consciousness. Two other things I just want to point out. The very first word of the Torah is Bereshis. Some of the commentaries say that you can see hidden in, in, in these words, an acronym. Bez, Resh, Aleph, Shin, Yud, Tav. Bereshis. Again, you have to mix it up a little bit. But the Aleph is for Or, the light. The Tav is for Torah, so the Torah of. And the other remaining letters, Resh, Shin, Bez, Yud, stand for Rashbi, or Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. So the Torah of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, right, the teachings of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai are hinted to in the very first words of the Torah, saying that this is going to be the last level of Torah, the, 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 the revealing, the revelation of the Torah of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai to the masses. And that's what we're experiencing today with the Kabbalah revolution. And finally, just to show the importance of the day of Lagba Omer, when we celebrate Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Lagba Omer has the numerical value of 345 with this specific spelling of Lagba Omer. And that has the same numerical value as Mem Shin He, which spells Moshe. And because of that, many of the Kabbalists say that there was actually a very deep connection between Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Moshe. Moshe, Moses, was the one who revealed the written Torah Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was the one who revealed to the world what one of the main goals of the Torah was, and that is to teach Kabbalah, mysticism, and spirituality. And therefore, Lagba Omer, in many ways, is somewhat of a celebration of this great revelation of Torah, a revelation that there wasn't one like it, really, since the Jewish people stood at Mount Sinai. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast and you can always go to rabbishlomo.com for more great content and resources and to connect directly with me.